The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we are back to another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's uh, late, but not so late. If you're catching us at our new time, 7 p.m. Pacific. So I want to give a quick shout out to everybody listening through the TuneIn app, uh, Ustream, LiveMe. And if you're listening to the podcasted version of this show, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or at whatever time of day it might be. Oh, namaste. Or, or that. <laughs> I'm joined by Genevieve. Genevieve, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm, as usual, looking forward to this. Uh, Walter Bosley never fails to blow my mind. He is such a multifaceted individual. I mean, anyone who does fiction and nonfiction and is great at both. Tells you something about I just that. hope he's not really good at barbecuing because that would just, you know, I, I would just lose all hope. In yeah, because I'm yeah. a vegetarian. And, uh, <laughs> I'm but, kidding, uh, I'm kidding. No, Walter is great. <laughs> and definitely check out some of his books. You can find them on lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U.com. And uh, believe me, we just interviewed him, uh, as I said, at the beginning of the show, I think a couple of months ago on his uh, 19th century breakaway civilizations book. And that was honestly, I, I remember telling him that as I read this book, it took me a long time to read it, not just because I'm a slow reader, but also because um, I had to Google some of this stuff. I'll be honest. I, I, I thought Walter was taking me for a ride a bit. And I started Googling and all this stuff was adding up. And like I said, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to him tonight about another one of his books. This time it's called Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. And I already got my next book lined up because uh, he definitely tackles a lot of topics that I encourage people to check out. So, uh, Jennifer, definitely, definitely. if you would be so kind to introduce tonight's guest. Well, as usual, Walter Bosley graces us with his presence on West Rockies again for the second radio interview this time round, leading us down the interesting and twining paths of Disney and more specifically Disneyland right here in California. Walter's book, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom, which happens to be his first nonfiction release, was first published back in 2008. And if I may quote so, he states that my objective here is to take an initial look at the facts relating to any arcane science or engineering associated with the building of the world's most famous and beloved theme park and the park's link to Latitude 33 primarily presenting this information as it may relate to an encounter I had in the park several years ago. The purpose is to determine merely if there is any reason to believe my theory may be true. And indeed, this is why we love Bosley, his style of research and writing, his diplomacy, lack of bias, as well as his much appreciated dry sense of humor, which you'll frequently catch a glimpse of in both writing and speech. Um, we know you'll love it. Anyway, we're not here to discuss the happy, clappy world of Disney, but the more deep-set roots of the theme park, its development, as well as what it means to people now in our present day and age. 
Disneyland might very well not be a place of just fun and fantasy. It might well be a theme park created fire and surrounded by metaphysically enhanced technology. Now, does that sound too much to take in right now for many of us? Yep, probably. So, we may as well dive straight in, and with that, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Walter Bosley back onto the show. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me back, and that amazing intro, I just want to be sure you're, you've got the, the right guy, because what you described there sounds way beyond uh, uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do appreciate the, uh, the, the, the kind superlative. <laughs> well, Walter, uh, I must say you're, you're definitely a, a great author and a great researcher, and we're definitely excited that you made not the time to be with us Not difficult tonight. to come up to with superlatives when it comes <laughs> to you, seriously. <laughs> right. Thank you. Now, let's start with uh, this experience that you referenced and Genevieve mentioned just now uh, during the opening. You, you had a, an experience, I'm going to kind of step out there and call it a paranormal experience. Feel free to correct me if you feel it was otherwise. But what was this experience that happened at the park and was this the spark that ignited this search and research really into this particular theme park? Well, um, what it was was more specifically a potential paranormal experience. Um, it was, at the time, one of those curiosities, one of those episodes in your life where it nags you. And for years, you wonder, was something more going on there? And as time went on and I started looking closer at it, indeed, I stumbled upon some things that convinced me that there was definitely something more going on there. Um, it, uh, it was preceded by really, um, uh, of all the strange experiences I've had, and we all have strange experiences, I think, but of all the ones I've had in my life, and I've had some that are doozies, um, probably I still consider the most slam banging one to be, um, uh, I, I, I kind of have called it an awakening. It happened to me in December of 1979 and I had, I was 16 years old. So when this Disneyland thing happened, it was after this very strange awakening experience. And I've only bring that up to say that I, I think that these things are kind of a process of an individual's um, mystical, spiritual um, uh, individuation, or I can't think of the word right now for it. But um, to go back to it, it was one of those experiences that seemed mundane, but with time proved to be not so mundane. We'll come back to that experience in just a minute, but let me ask you a little bit about your background because I think people will find this interesting. I know I did. You have mentioned in the past and you mentioned in the book as well that your father worked for the U.S. Air Force and he seemed to have some knowledge of the Roswell crash. And from your uh, mother's side, I believe your grandfather was a descendant of the Cherokee tribe, if I'm not mistaken. And uh you also mentioned that uh, your mom's brother was your mentor for uh, several years, and it was these uh, these connections that set you on a path, or at least helped you perceive things that I guess to the rest of us might not be discernible. Can you tell me a little bit about how that shaped you and how this came into play with the research you would undertake years later? 
Um, well, all of that you described. My dad's strange experience when he was on active duty in the late 50s in the Air Force, um, which has, in the last couple of years, resulted in uh, a book that I've written, Shimmering Light, and I can mention that a little later, um, which is about that particular thing you're talking about, which involves what he said he knew about Roswell and such. This is something that was, you know, from, I remember him talking about this when I was a kid in 1974, so you got that in the mix. And yes, indeed, on my mom's side of the family, we are, you know, according to what I've looked at and seen of family stuff, um, descendants of uh, Sequoia, the Cherokee who first put the Cherokee language into um, written form, uh, created their alphabet and such, and the gentleman who the trees are named after. And it was my mom's uh, brother, one of her brothers, who was my uh, personal um, and professional mentor from the time, oh, I was in college. And, uh, you know, he guided me through my, through my professional life during the years I was with FBI and the Air Force and then in counterterrorism after that. And um, so all of that that I just described there, you know, has been in the mix from my youth. I was always interested in weird things. Uh, my first favorite genre of film was horror films and weird films because my dad loved that stuff and that's what he'd take us to see at the drive-in every Saturday night. So I was really the weirdest kid of us three and liked the weird stuff. And it just kind of clicked with me. So it, it really it doesn't surprise the rest of my family, all these things I'm writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, I mean, it makes for some great, great books. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, I really enjoy uh, your research. It's quite thorough and it definitely uh, leaves you uh, uh, with a desire to look into some of these mysteries a little more. Let's talk about Walt Disney, the man, for a minute before we get into the park and some of the, the things that you tackle in the book. You know, there's a lot of myth and legend that surrounds Walt Disney. Some people oh, yeah. have said that, you know, he, was, he belonged to a secret society. He had a working relationship, at least, with uh, Bernard von Braun, who was a former Nazi rocket scientist that was brought over with a Project Paperclip. And uh, he's also been linked to L. Ron Hover, the founder of Scientology, uh, occultist Aleister Crowley, and, and a figure that I'm personally morbidly fascinated, Jack Parsons. Is there any truth to any of these uh, stories about Walt that you know of that you came upon during your research? Um, very little to zero wow. of any of the stories uh, ranging from masonry to the occultism to to being the there's one out there that his father had this uh, affair with a mysterious spanish lady and and um you know that's walt's real mother and it gives him this pedigree going back to i don't think it's the templars but all this zany stuff you know the problem with that is as walt got older it was clear you know that uh, um Mrs. Disney was his mom. I mean, he, he looks like her and stuff. And, and, you know, there's nothing to back that up. And you hear my frustration with um, having come out with this book and talked about it a lot is no matter how many times I come out and, and state, you know, hey, when you go out there and look at this stuff, Walt Disney was none of this heinous stuff that these people want to paint him to be. 
no matter how many times you point that out to people, you, you still, I still hear the very same people, you know, the very next day saying the same things because it's more fun to um, project this creepy occultist image, uh, whether it's true or not, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just more fun and it fits in with a, you know, and a narrative and an agenda that, you know, they're dedicated to. Now, the truth that you hear about Walt is he was in Demolay. Uh, in high school. Now, Demolay is a Masonically sponsored youth organization. That's true. But I was never able to find where, as an adult, he ever became a Freemason. And that stuff is not hard to find if it's true. It's not that hard to find if it's true. And um, I was never able to find where he was a member of any lodge, ever became a Mason as an adult. Now, the other thing that's true about him, um, he liked to drink, he liked to cuss. Um, he didn't like unions. Um, and, uh, you know, he did the propaganda films course during the war. And, yes, he was on the side of, you know, the FBI and the government w during the Red Scare. But look at the context of the times. Um, he was a man of his times, like him or not. But he was not an evil man. Um, I have found definitely that there is something to be concerned about the corporate Disney company long after Walt's death. That's the Disney that bothers me. I mean, today they're just buying everything up left and right. It makes your head spin in a bad way. But as far as Walt himself, I'll say it again, <laughs> that all these dark, evil tales, other than him being a, a, a drinking, smoking, cussing curmudgeon, um, you know, not, none of that occult stuff, none of that other stuff you hear is true. I think that a lot of people, including myself, when we research some of these topics, we look at, at some of the things that others have pointed out. For example, you know, Club 33, which is an exclusive elite club within the park. I have friends that go there and they assure me nothing weird happens inside, <laughs> right? It's uh, the fanciest restaurant, um, you know, in the park. And it, it's exclusive to stay fancy. It's exclusive. And, you know, if you got the money, you're in. Right. And as you mentioned, he was part of the demo way. And uh, that is an association that's linked to Freemasonry. And I believe, I mean, I could be wrong, but I remember reading something like Bill Clinton was a member and uh, there might be some people of renown that have uh, participated in sure. that organization. Before we move on, just so that we can set the groundwork for what we're going to talk about, what are ley lines? Just for the people out there that don't know, can you tell us about that? Yes, and it's good that we clarify from the start because ley line is a term that I used to use it, you know, across the board. And to be more accurate, what we're talking about, what I'm talking about in the book and in my books after that, are actually more specifically telluric current, um, the flows and currents of energy that run through the planet. Think world grid, the Tesla-related world grid of energy. And um, the telluric current is something that's very real. Again, you can Google that. It, it's out there. Um, you know, it's this uh, extreme low frequency or ELF energy that naturally runs through the ground, through the terrain of the planet. Now, this is something that radio engineers and, and telegraphers, you know, the old telegraphy, like they would use in the old days with the Morse code, the little tapping thing you see in the Western films, um, they've known about this for a long time, and they utilized it in their technology. They would put their 
lines up where they could read the geomorphology of the terrain, and they found that their um, telegraph would work better. Now, in the modern era, you know, our own era, um, they also found that it worked with other forms of electronic communication. So very often you will find radio towers along these telluric current lines, okay, that, uh, again, can be identified through geomorphology. Now, the reason we get in the habit of calling them ley lines is because of the ley line issue uh, where sacred spots um, are located along these straight line paths um, in the ancient world and in the medieval world and such. And that's why the two get interchanged in use, because um, Tullert current can be used for mystical purposes. And it would make sense that these um, sacred sites would be co-located along Tullert current. So um, th- that's where the the mix-up comes. But tonight when we're talking about Disneyland and my research, we're talking specifically about Tullert current, even if we refer to them as ley lines. And what are some of the other events that have occurred along ley lines? I know that, you know, you can Google this stuff and find um, lists events of Events or... Um structures any locations of interest i suppose well what you have um and this is where latitude 33 of the title comes in what you have um is a situation where there's a zone kind of a belt around the planet um which between the uh latitude of 30 and 40 north um you find interesting things like the Great Pyramids and, uh, of course, Disneyland and uh, events, incidents like the JFK assassination in Dallas was, you know, at 33. And, and there's just numerous ones. And this uh, this concept is becoming more popularized. More people are aware of, you know, what we're talking about here. Um, uh, I believe it, I, the name escapes me, but there's a gentleman with a book, uh, I believe, called Latitude 37. He's done similar type of research. But it's a, it's a concept that the ancients and the not-so-ancients, somebody, even in our times, understands something about... Um, that particular latitude, and more specifically, connecting things at, in that latitudinal zone to these telluric currents or ley lines for kind of the the double whammy, you know? Yeah, actually, I think this might be a good time to kind of zero in on the location of the park and what it could be, uh, the significance of it. And this is actually a very fascinating story. I don't know how many people know about this because you bring into this whole equation the Stanford Research Institute and a, and a gentleman by the name of uh, C.B. Woods or Cornelius Vanderbilt Woods. Tell me a little bit about this man and how the Stanford Research Institute comes into play in the development of something that is meant to be a family-friendly uh, theme park. Ah, uh, Yes. It really does all begin with C.V. Wood, this this interesting weirdness about Disneyland. Um, when Walt and his brother Roy were first conceiving the idea of doing the park, they really wanted to use all the available resources to locate it in just the right, most successful place. 
And so they enlisted the aid of the legendary, now legendary, Stanford Research Institute, or SRI. Now, for the listeners, yes, it's the same SRI that would go on to be involved with the development of scientific remote viewing and other interesting, strange things. And the gentleman who was assigned to the project, uh, there, there were two. There was a guy named Harrison Price, but he was more of a numbers guy. And... Uh, the, the other guy assigned was this Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood. Um, he was an engineer that worked for SRI, and he was very interested in, you know, what they call mind science and, and psychic abilities and things like that on, on the, uh, the, that edge of the paranormal spectrum. He was so intrigued by the idea of this, um, this park, this Disney park, that he actually left SRI to go work for the Disney's. Now, he's the one who located the spot that Disneyland is built on. They, they have multiple options. One of them was closer to L.A. Uh, one of them was out here in the Inland Empire. And, you know, another one was this 140 acres, I believe, or 160 acres, whatever it was, of Orange Grove land in Anaheim. And C.V. Wood is the guy who found that location and really pressed the Disneys to build their park there. And that gets interesting when we start talking about the Telluric Current in the park. Really quick, I just want to get a, a question here from Genevieve. You know, just for those um, tuning in for the first time and um, really hearing about ley lines for the first time, uh, just to kind of reel them in and show them how interesting they really are. Uh, could you name us, you know, a few places that would be of interest to those listening, such as the site of the JFK assassination, for instance? Yes, the JFK assassination happened, you have to say, virtually on latitude 33 because it was technically at 32.7 something, whatever, okay? And in in you know, you're talking large-scale terms here. That's that's close enough. Um, you know, in horseshoes and hand grenades, it, you know, it, that's a hit. And, you know, we all know how strange and weird the whole JFK assassination event was, okay? Um, it also took place in Dealey Plaza, which has that trident-shaped uh roadway, okay, thoroughfare through there. Now, um, the trident is important because that's the number three, and that associates it with the curious goddess Hecate, whom I have written about a lot and who factors in my research a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read King Kill 33, an essay by um, uh, Shelby Downard, you will see how much Hecate symbolism is just uh, soaking the JFK assassination milieu. And there, all this stuff happened in the vicinity of Latitude 33, but it really gets into all the strange Hecate symbolism and the triple symbolism. And the reason I bring up this part of that is not only is there Telluric current running through there, which means whoever did the JFK assassination um, did it as partially a 
dark magical operation and they connected it to the telluric current okay now disneyland was not a dark operation we're going to get into that the rest of the discussion but what cv wood did with disneyland as a psychotronic device was not intended to be a dark thing mm-hmm. and it was not a dark thing in practice but um there is a, an intersection of three telluric current lines in Disneyland, and uh, we're going to be talking about that. But I bring that up because of the, the triple intersection, okay, of the telluric current at Disneyland. And I mentioned the, the trident shape, the, the triple aspect of the JFK assassination. This, this shows you that there's a similar... Um, thematic application in the the choice of locations for this kind of magical stuff if that is yeah. what you're you know yeah. the answer you're looking for no no definitely no. because we are getting a lot more questions just developing on that has given us a lot more questions in the chat room here people are going a bit crazy and we'll go into that later maybe if we have time but but they're asking about um aliens and how it might relate to them etc cetera, etc cetera. so Let's leave it there for now, but I think this well, has really got people's appetites wetted. <laughs> yeah, once you open the, uh, that can of worms, yeah, it is the lady I, lines. I just wanted to yeah. highlight the significance of them. Now, Walter, let's kind of get back to CV Wood and SRI, uh, because I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about this and maybe get a little bit of clarification on this. Uh, we know that CV Wood was indeed into some very interesting topics and Uh, you even mentioned that he wrote the foreword to a book on, uh, I think it was psychic phenomena of, of some type. So we can uh, deduce that C.V. Wood was into this type of knowledge. Yes. Now, in your book, you mentioned that a lot of this knowledge stems from uh, occulted physics and uh, arcane mathematics linked to the Nazi SS. How could this knowledge arrive to the U.S. and into the hands, quite possibly, of C.V. Wood to then use in developing Disneyland? Well, in C.V. Wood's case, it was really um, the fact that he was interested in these things. And, you know, through his own research, through the people he was associated with, um, the ones we know he was associated with, because it's not really that easy to find too many details on the man. He's out there, but, but for the longest time, uh, he was not acknowledged in any official Disney literature. He and Walt had a f- bit of a falling out, and it was kind of silly. It was over ego. Um, you know, Walt Disney conceived Disneyland. That's a fact. What C.V. Wood did was find the location and manage the engineering of the park, okay? He managed, um, he, he provided Walt with the material or physical manifestation of his vision. So he played a, a, an incredibly important role, but it was still, you know, Walt's idea. And Wood was out there kind of crediting himself as the man who created Disneyland. And, you know, you got two A-types, <laughs> what's <laughs> right. going to happen? Uh, Walt said, hey, pal, it's called Disneyland for a reason. And they had a little bit of a falling out. So for years, Wood, you could not find Wood mentioned in any official Disney literature or anything on Disneyland. And uh, now you can. I don't think that was particularly my doing. Um, there's a gentleman with a website who I, I reference in the book. Um, I believe that 
it was probably because he was really the first one to start, you know, talking about this C.V. Wood guy. But um, Wood was one of the founding members of an organization called the Mind Science Foundation, and the leader of that for a while was a a millionaire uh, named uh, Tom Swift. And uh, Swift was involved, among other things, with the hunt for uh, the abominable snowman, the Yeti. Okay, so Swift was very much involved in in these kinds of interests. Uh, But it's hard to pinpoint where Wood um, specifically you know, got all his knowledge or, or exactly what sources. He's kind of this curious, um, almost carnival kind of figure because, you know, he was in this cheesy low-budget movie uh, in the 70s. Um, he, he was, by people who knew him personally, he was called the consummate showman. Um, he, he was kind of like, um, oh, the, the character who goes to on to become you know, the Wizard of Oz and the Oz mm-hmm. stories. Um, you know, it, it's he, he's an interesting guy who's hard to pin down. And, you know, it's funny, as you describe him, I can see how he fit into Disneyland, but how he could come to odds with the man, you know, Disney himself. And uh, I did read that bit in your book about the, the falling out they had and, and how uh, C.V. Wood, in a way, was taking credit, but... Like you said, it was called Disneyland, and let's face it, Woodyland would not be a very uh, cool name. I don't think. <laughs> well, uh, you know, here's an interesting thing, and this uh-huh. kind of goes to what um, Genevieve was uh, saying earlier, we're asking earlier, um, would, after doing Disneyland, he designed some other parks. Now, what's interesting is the other parks that were not connected that that I, that I could identify that were not connected to a Tolert to current flowing through, those did not last. Oh, wow. There's one other park he did that is right there on a Tolert current that goes, uh, I believe it's connected to the Tolert current in the JFK assassination, and that's where the, um, I believe it's the first, the original Six Flags Park um, outside of, uh, it's the one in Texas, Six right. Flags, Texas. Uh, C.V. Wood was, I believe, the original designer of that park. A Tolert current goes right through there. And um, my recollection is, it's been a while since I worked with this data, but my recollection is that that Tolert current line that goes through Six Flags, Texas, um, connects to the site of the JFK assassination. And that park, as we know, exists today and has thrived. So the two parks that Wood designed, that he selected the locations for, Okay, that are on the Telluric current survive and thrive to this day. The ones that, for whatever reason, he couldn't convince them to build on the Telluric current have not survived. Now, there is a third in Colorado that, you know, it, it's not that famous, but, but it has stayed in operation and it's connected to a Telluric current. So, you know, there are three in total, but uh, I find that to be. Really interesting. And whether it's Woody Land or not, and, and even though Walt was right, it was Disneyland, his original idea, the credit for the park physically, for Disneyland, the original Magic Kingdom, to physically be this psychotronic device, that is C.V. Woods. And for the record, I do not think that Walt knew what Wood was doing physically with the park. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, really quick, do you know what were the other parks that he worked on that didn't, you know, see the success of Disneyland and Six Flags over Texas? Um, there was one in 
I think it was New Jersey that, you know, I think it lasted maybe 10 years. And it's in the book. It's in the photo section of the book. The one I be- the one in the Denver area was uh, one he designed originally called Magic Mountain, and it exists as something else today. Okay. And, um, yes, Freedom Land in New Jersey. Now, what's interesting is Freedom Land, I, my data says that it was placed on a telluric current, but it didn't last. I'm not mistaken. um, I believe the reason Freedom Land, uh, that I and my associates argued that Freedom Land um, did not last, it had to do with the carousel. See, the key to Uh these is putting the carousel on the telluric current. This is what we'll get into. This is the main uh, operative device of the mechanism that is Disneyland, is that the carousel sat on the intersection of the triple telluric current. And also in Six Flags, Texas, that carousel sits on the telluric current. When you don't have that device on the telluric current, it doesn't draw up the energy, um, which is which is the heart of this device that I propose Wood was building into these parks. And also, <laughs> this is just absolutely top of my head thought. I'm trying to remember you know, all the uh, carousels I've been on. Thinking about them, I mean, the last two or three, I I do still like my carousels when I go to theme parks, yes. Um, They go anti-clockwise, I believe. Um, Is there there something to that? Or am I reading into that too much? Um, I'm not sure if that's also important. (laughs) Let's see. Yes. Here's how it works. In the United States, carousels run counterclockwise. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is in England and in Europe, I believe, they run clockwise. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. never been able to find an answer to the question why. <laughs> I don't know if just, you know, the, the, the American carousel builders just wanted to be different, but they do run differently. Now, it's interesting when you consider that what I'm talking about are amusement parks, uh, specifically those which the C.V. Wood guy was building. Um, in the U.S., did the, the counterclockwise issue, did that play into the telluric current? See, I suspect, and I am slowly uh, researching the possibility that where C.V. Wood got his info about the carousel was possibly um, a generation of park builders before him that knew something about placing these carousels, something about um, uh, uh, paranormal phenomena and, you know, extraordinary phenomena um, through the placement of carousels. And uh, my, my research, it's, it's slow. I'm eking it out. I'm hoping to do a follow-up book on this. But, but my point is, I don't have the answer yet. But that, of course, goes back to your question about where did he get this info. This is what I suspect because of, you know, one of the facts being what you just pointed out, the, that the carousels in the States you know, spin counterclockwise. Yeah, that's probably why I just the recent memory of, you know, different carousels has always been counterclockwise. But, you know, as a young kid in Germany growing up, I do remember them as much as I think I remember them. I, they went clockwise. <laughs> <laughs> now, you got to remember, in our times, there's been such a... Uh, uh, 
you know, um, I mean, my gosh, there's Disneyland in Paris now. For all I know, the carousel there runs counterclockwise like it does in America. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's some rule that says you can't do it there. What we're talking about is past history, that they always traditionally did run clockwise uh, until American carousel builders started doing it the opposite way. And uh, it, it's it's a very curious thing when you're looking at it from this perspective of mysticism and, you know, hermetic engineering and such. Now, Walter, one person that pops up in this story is Nikola Tesla. And we got to go back to uh, the 19th century. And honestly, Walter, I got to credit you for uh, exposing me to the very real probability that in the 19th century, humanity, I'll say that, humanity had more advanced knowledge than we give ourselves credit for whether it was our own human ingenuity or with the aid of some other things. And uh, Nikola Tesla was definitely one of those people. In your book, you mentioned the World's Fair from Chicago, and I believe it took place, the particular event that I want to talk about, I believe was in 1893, the 1893 World Fair in Chicago. And I believe Nikola Tesla was there. And the tie-in here is that apparently Walt's father worked at the fair, and this might have been the fertile ground where the seeds for Disneyland got planted. Can you tell us a little bit about the World Fair? What was Nikola Tesla doing there and how does he fit into this world of Disney? Ah, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, the, the magical, amazing Colombian exposition, as they called it, the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Elias Disney, Walt's father, indeed, um, was one of the construction workers, one of the many, to build, essentially, the the World's Fair. Um, specifically worked on what they refer to as the White City, because all the buildings were painted a brilliant white. Um, this fair was really the beginning of the 20th century, the beginning of the world that all of us live in, believe it or not. I gave an introduction to um, Sesh Hari, the author of the book Wonder of the Worlds, which is about Nikola Tesla um, in 1893, going on a journey to Mars with Mark Twain and a young Harry Houdini. And it starts, the novel starts out at this World's Fair. And I gave an introduction uh, to Sesh Hari speaking at the International UFO Congress in, I believe it was 2006 or seven. And in that intro, I talk about what I just said, how the 1893 Chicago World's Fair was really the um, the beginning of the 20th century as we know it. Um, and that was driven uh, primarily by the technology that was being explored and demonstrated and tested. And of course, Nikola Tesla ended up really being the star of the whole thing because um, at, at this Chicago World's Fair, which ran for a year from the fall of 1893 through 1894, most of 1894, this thing was a spectacle that, um, you know, they say that at the time in 1893, one in four Americans traveled across the country to go to this fair. Now, I want you to think about that. Wow. 25% of the American population, the whole country in 1893, supposedly attended this fair. That's what a big, it was the Disneyland on steroids of its day. And it was the one of the first times 
um, and I believe on its scale, the first time that anybody saw what a city lit artificially at night would really look like. Um, that was the other hallmark of the white city. It was lit. Now, you go back, you know, and look this up online. You look at photos and you go, big deal. It's a city with lights. You got to understand, in 1893, that was astonishing. I think they'd done a little bit of it in Paris in the 1880s at that World Fair, but nothing like on the scale that they did in Chicago in 1893. And that was all Tesla's doing. Tesla was the one who, you know, lit that World's Fair and really showed us the future of the urban setting, you know, and what it would become. Now, what's interesting is this 1893 Chicago World's Fair became the mo- the actual model across the United States for how cities were designed. After that World's Fair, you go back and look at the cities that were established or redesigned or, or redid their downtown center, and you'd be amazed at how the architecture and, and with the lighting and the way they set up uh, uh, the entertainment in the marketplace was greatly modeled and deeply influenced by this World's Fair, okay? And Elias Disney had been one of the guys to construct it and went to it, okay? Um, this was eight years, seven or eight years before Walt was born in 1901. So Walt, you know, he grew up hearing the stories. People still talked about this thing for 20 years after this particular World's Fair. And yes, indeed, Walt Disney grew up hearing stories from his dad and, you know, his mom and and everybody he knew, the older folks who had attended this thing. And that was in his head. And, and, And by the way, it not only became the model for how cities were designed, urban planning was designed, but it, the midway where all the rides and the fun things were became the model for amusement parks, okay? So, yes, um, absolutely, this was in Walt's mind from the time he was a child, and it was there in his mind when, as an adult, and he had his daughters, um, he got tired of going to carnivals and, you know, little sideshows, things that he felt were were dirty and and chaotic and not conducive to really children having a good time or families having a safe, clean place to go enjoy an amusement park. And it was that with this childhood um, uh, imagery of this great world's fair that really ignited Walt's desire to create this thing we know as Disneyland, which was the first of its kind. There had been nothing that... Um, impactful on its genre of what it was as the 1893 World's Fair as Disneyland was when it emerged, okay? Disneyland was the next thing like the 1893 Chicago World's Fair in its impact, obviously. I mean, uh, I don't think anybody could deny that Disneyland changed, you know, amusement centers. And it was, it was also greatly influenced, by the way, by Tivoli Gardens in uh, Copenhagen, Okay, Walt had been there, and he was really impressed. So the Europeans were already, you know, figuring out how to do this kind of thing. And Walt just, you know, injecting some steroids into it. That's really interesting. And uh, Walter, we're going to take a top-of-the-hour break here a little early, because when we come back, I want to get into really the meat and potatoes of this book, which is the carousel, where it's located, and how Disneyland really has changed. There was an event that took place in the 80s where there seems to have been a break from the Disneyland that a lot of people grew up visiting 
and what it is today. And I want to get into that because honestly, I'm not a huge Disney fan. I have friends who are really into it. And I mean, they tell me about, they auction off pieces of the park that people have acquired through different means. And it's a whole culture, really. And it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Really quick, do you think that what you discuss in the book has to do with people's affinity, I'll say, to this particular theme park? It has everything, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. to do with it. Um, When it was active and operational, absolutely, it, it it has everything to do with it. And then, and we'll talk about this when we come back, um, after it was disengaged, that has everything to do with what the park has become since. Wow. Well, honestly, I can't wait. And I know the people at home can't wait. So Walter, would you be so kind just to hang on the line? We're going to play a couple of songs and run some station IDs. And then we're going to get back into this because this is really, really interesting stuff. Everyone that's listening, get your questions lined up. We already have a few in the chat, but if you do want them asked, then ask them as soon as possible. We're going to be right back to continue this topic. And what can I say? So far, um, I'm on the edge of my seat. This is some really fascinating stuff. And I'm glad we have Walter here to walk us through a lot of this stuff. We're going to go to break with... Yes, Sorry. Oh, no. I... You, I, I missed my chance. I missed my chance on on a pun of here's Walt on Walt. Oh, that was. I'm sorry that I ruined that one. Yeah. Oh darn. Yeah. I mean, we could try and reset. We're, we're, but we're interviewing Walt on Walt today. There you go. I mean, and, and it's true. And it's true. Let's see. We're gonna go out with a little bit of Rodriguez. I haven't played some Rodriguez in a while. This is uh, this is one of my favorite songs by Rodriguez. It's called uh, Sugar Man. This is West of the Rockies. I'm joined by Genevieve. I'm Frank. Walter Bosley's on the line. We're talking about his book, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. What is going on at Disneyland? That is the question of tonight. Here's Sugar Man from his album, Cold Fact. If you haven't seen the documentary, Searching for Sugar Man, check it out. I think it's on Netflix or something. Definitely, definitely a good watch. I know you're going to be searching for some sugar. (laughs) That's bad. Anyways, here we go, guys. We're coming right back. West of the Rockies With Frank Open, open Your, your, your Mind, mind We're back to the second hour west of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. We're having an amazing conversation with our guest tonight, Walter Bosley, talking about his book, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. And man, oh man, it's been it's been interesting. And it's only going to get better in this second hour. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, west of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at W-O-T-R radio, just spell West of the Rockies. Well, don't spell it, just take the first letter of West of the Rockies and then add the word radio to it. And that's the same for the website, WOTRradio.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just click subscribe right down there. Uh, That's the best way to support us. There are no subscription fees or anything like that. It's really easy. Just click subscribe and you're set. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have actually made it a point to, unless we're literally living on the street, we refuse to 
charge. So that's probably going to be next week's show. <laughs> so uh, yeah. please give us money for food. <laughs> Look for our GoFundMe. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Genevieve. Yeah, you can find her on Twitter at Genevieve Uway. Um, just go to the website and you'll find it. I'm not going to sit here and play the alphabet game. You need to pick an easier handle. That's all I'm going to say. And you can catch her here every Thursday. Sally Smith. Something like that. (laughs) Uh, You can catch her every Thursday night hosting her very own show. No out of flavors, music, fun facts, jokes, and a whole lot more. Um, Definitely tune in to that. As I mentioned, our guest tonight is Walter Bosley. You can find his books at lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U.com. And uh, Walter has an amazing selection of books both fiction and nonfiction. And I highly, highly recommend you go out and get some of these. I already ordered a copy of uh, Shimmering Light, which Walter first introduced us to when we met him at last year's Contact in the Desert conference. Mm-hmm. And it was all kinds of fascinating. And uh, I look forward to hopefully having him back once that book is under my belt, so to speak, to talk about it. Uh, Walter, why don't you tell us a little bit about Shimmering Light, just to kind of whet some appetites here. Ah, yes. Well, going back to, I believe we uh, were saying earlier how I got interested in all sorts of weird things. And uh, one of the main reasons was my dad's strange experience when he was in the Air Force in the late 50s, according to him. And I heard this story, you know, starting in 1974, which was six years before the first book on Roswell was ever published. Um he was involved with a, a UFO recovery operation in eastern Arizona. And um, because of his clearance and, and what he did, he worked in the uh, aerospace medicine division of the Air Force, specifically in a physiological training unit. He ran pilots through the altitude chamber. He trained them on their pressure suits for high-altitude flight and all that stuff. But his unit was also involved in the early days of the Mercury Space Program because before NASA was even created and founded, the Mercury Space Program existed, and it was for a short time um, a U.S. Air Force program. And my dad and the guys in his unit um, did the ground testing for the Mercury um, space program suits, the silver suits you see the astronauts wear, like in the film, the right stuff. Well, because of that, he had a very high clearance and that's why he would have been involved with this recovery that he said he was involved with. And that involved in itself first going to Wright Patterson air force base and being briefed in on what happened at Roswell in 1947. This would have been only 11 years after what happened at Roswell. Well, it was still a big secret to the public for the most part. And he told the most astounding story over the decades. Um, it, you know, the story stayed true, um, true to its details is what I mean. And, you know, he didn't change it as as things changed outside, you know, in the field of UFOs and stuff, he stuck to his guns on what the story was. And after hearing this story for 40 years, I finally decided, you know what, I need to get this down on paper in a book. I need to really dive into it and really investigate his claims. And what I found um, further astounded me um, between the possibility that what he said was true at face value or even if it was a planted narrative under the MK Ultra program, 
um, that in itself um, astonished me how close he would have been to MK Ultra, and that's what that book is about. It's extremely fascinating. Like I said, I already ordered one. I'm waiting for it eagerly to arrive in the mail. Just based on what you just said, I'm sure a lot of people are like, "What in the world?" But <laughs> considering that you have this background. What did you think of the news, I guess, that the U.S. has been studying UFOs for quite a long time? And this was big news back in December. I don't want to be that guy, but I think deep down, me and other like-minded individuals, we knew that this was happening. And it's probably still happening just under a different name or something. But what did you make of those news and that video? Can you tell us a little bit what your impressions were? Are we actually looking at a at an object from another galaxy, another dimension, or is it a black project? Well, actually, when I heard about, you know, this program that the these reports are talking about, I kind of laughed for about 10 minutes straight because um, it was presented, and a lot of people have taken it as if that, that's, that had never been done before. Um, uh, project Blue Book did the same exact thing, you know, decades ago. This is nothing new. The, right. the, the U.S. government and the military has been looking into UFOs since 1947. And that fact has been made famously public. I mean, Project Blue Book became a TV series, for crying out loud. <laughs> so this presenting it, this spin that it was, oh, we finally in the 2000s decided to look at UFOs, anybody who's over 30 years old was just kind of going, what? What are they saying? They've been looking at UFOs for 80 years. So I saw it as some type of perception management thing. Now, on the footage itself, if you look up a video, I believe it's called the Goddard video, um, it explains what the, the so-called Tic Tac UFO actually probably is. Mm. Um, and that's an artifact of the videography. It's the uh, exhaust glow of an aircraft, most likely. Now, I know there's the issue of the Navy pilot. And, um, you know, he'd never seen anything like it. It was nothing like what we have. Now, I have said elsewhere, and I'll say here, um, not every pilot is read in on every um, aerial uh, flying platform or, or aircraft, okay? And particularly if it's deeply classified type of technology, not every pilot knows every program that's out there. So it's very possible that what the Navy pilot saw was something he just simply was not read into, okay? Now, before everybody wants to beat me over the head out there, um, <laughs> I do, I'm not one of those that says E.T. does not exist and doesn't come to this planet. I absolutely am convinced E.T. does exist and that they do come to this planet. But I think this stuff, this stuff we got to be careful with because I think what's going on here is an attempt to spin things in the direction of perception management the way some particular national security entity wants it spun. I look forward to asking more questions when the time comes to do that interview, particularly with what you meant by you're convinced that uh, this visitation has happened. But we'll save that for the next interview. How about that? There's a little okay, teaser. Sure. <laughs> now, uh, just to finish up uh, order of business, during the break, I played uh, Rodriguez, Sugarman, followed by Oasis, Supersonic. Got to do a little bit of uh, house cleaning here. And I believe we have a question from the chat that needs an answer. Let well, us know what's happening in like there. You know, general questions rolling in. Also, thanks given to you, Walter, for being on the show. 
Um, one of your questions, I think a great general question, is um, what kind of power, or I'd like to rephrase that and say uh, clearance, did you have in the U.S. government or in your line of work in that field? Oh, um, I was uh, what you refer to as um, TSSCI, and what I was beyond that was something that we, you know, in practice were really kind of forbidden to say, but in this last presidential election, one of the candidates was just bandying about this phrase that technically you're not supposed to, and that's special access program, SAP. And um, I have to leave it at that, but I was, you know, um, TSSCI, I have what we call tickets in the SCI category, multiple tickets, which are levels of classification, you know, and, and this is all slash, 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 and, and so that was the level in which I worked at. SCI, I'm not allowed to identify the tickets I have, um, the levels within SCI, and uh, SAP. Now, in my duties, I had to have access to, you know, some advanced and experimental Air Force technologies. I had to have the clearance to be read into that because in what I did, we were handling um, classified data and um, documents involving um, classified and experimental Air Force technology. So, you know, to the extent that my duties as an OSI agent in what I did, counter-espionage counter operations, I was cleared for weird, as we say. <laughs> wow. I mean, I can only imagine, uh, yeah, some of the things that, that your uh, assignments, uh, you know, uh, exposed you to. Uh, I was expecting you to say you were also a man in black and was going to raise mm. our memories if you kept oh. telling us about your <laughs> so, work. But. So, so, so you had to tick the weird box to get into it. I, I could tick that really easily. <laughs> yeah, Genevieve would fit the weird category quite well. Um, all right, Walter, what do you say we get back into your book here? But first, let me make a bit of a preamble because I'm a big fan of using another example to reinforce a point. And you do this in your book taking another Walter, boy, Walters are all over the conversation tonight. You mentioned mm. another Walter in your book. This time is Walter Not. And you yeah. mentioned so th this one is not Walter. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to get tricky, folks. So we're gonna, we might have to resort to using last names here like it's a football game or something. But Walter Not, I was reading in your book that he is uh, responsible for building the Calico Ghost Town, which we actually had the pleasure of visiting uh, a couple of uh, years ago, and it's honestly, it's a really nice place if you do the road trip out there. Uh, I definitely uh, encourage people to check it out. It's, it's a cool little spot. And uh, the reason why you bring him up is because the Calico Ghost Town that he built, which is essentially a tourist attraction, it was built with the remnants of, uh, of buildings from another location. And it was bringing these buildings over to Calico that apparently amped up some activity there. And you use this like a springboard to take us into Walt Disneyland and the carousel we're going to talk about here in a minute. So can you tell us why Walter Knott is relevant to what we're talking about tonight? Well, yes. Um, Walter Knott is, of course, the creator and builder of Knott's Berry Farm, which is, as we say in Southern California, right down the road from Disneyland. It's over there in uh, 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 
Buena Park. Oh, gosh, yeah, Buena go. Park. And anybody, you know, if you, if you have lived in Southern California, particularly in my case, you know, you've grown up in Southern California, you went to Knott's Berry Farm almost as much as you went to Disneyland. Well, Disney and Knott, of course, were acquainted and were friends. They got along real well. And Walter Knott himself um, is uh, uh, described as being interested in ghost stories and things like that. And so it was interesting that when he wanted to build his tourist attraction, which celebrated Southern California's, uh, you know, old 49er day mining industry, you know, Western history, um, he built it on the side of an actual uh, silver mining installation out here, an old silver mining camp. But what's interesting is he went and purchased the buildings from Tombstone, Arizona, Many of the buildings at Calico Ghost Town, the tourist attraction, which is owned by Knott's Berry Farm, or was built by Knott's Berry Farm, by Walter Knott, many of those buildings were the buildings that were standing in Tombstone during the legendary time of the gunfight at the OK Corral. Now, what the reason I bring that up in the book is because, you know, you have Walter Knott who's interested in ghost stories and such, and there presently are some uh, reports of paranormal activity at Calico Ghost Town. And what's interesting is Tombstone is in that zone I was talking about earlier, okay? So did not, when he brought the buildings from Tombstone that were there during the old west days did he bring the energy did he bring some of the you know spirits connected to those buildings to calico it's an idea it's it's a speculation which i think is kind of a lot of fun and very interesting within the context of what we're talking about you know what i'm proposing was done you know with disneyland and it kind of shows you that you know even though i don't think walt really knew that what wood was up to with his park you know, here you have a guy who was friends with another park builder who definitely, you know, found these kinds of things interesting. And it kind of it kind of serves the milieu, you know, when you're trying to answer the question, you know, what's going on here with this weirdness with, with Disneyland. Right. And uh, really quick, just as a quick sidebar, Anaheim has an interesting history. I, I was reading that it was uh, founded by, I think, something like... 40 or 50 German families. The name Anaheim itself has a German meaning. And uh, something that I do remember from high school, actually, from going to high school out there in Orange County, was my history teacher told us that Anaheim used to be a, a big Ku Klux Klan city. And he mentioned that even right up until the 50s, the police officers, if you gave them like the right Raise or the right handshake, they would let you go because they were members of the KKK. Does this have any bearing to Disneyland at all? I don't think that would. What I think did from Anaheim history have some um, thematic worth in discussing, you know, why CV would really push for that location is because those German founders of Anaheim, what we know as Anaheim, were um, viticulturists, okay? They, uh, 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 they grew grapes and fruits and things like that. And of course, with grapes come wine, and of course. And there is, you know, um, some esoteric uh, association in the culture of the, you know, the, you, you go back in, in viticulture and naturally they have their esoterica. So what you've got is a place where Viticulturalists have just as much interest in wanting to grow where there's tol 
telluric energy as a telegrapher has in, in putting his uh, telegraphy lines along telluric currents, okay? These Germans who founded Anaheim, if they were true traditional viticulturalists, they somehow, probably through geomorphology, that's reading the physical terrain of, you know, the land, the, 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 the shape of the land and that kind of thing, um, along which these currents flow from the world grid. This, again, I'm going to say theoretically because I know there's some skeptic guys out there who for some reason are choosing to listen tonight. Um, <laughs> so viticulturalists, they would have recognized this telluric current, however they would read it, in this location in Anaheim. And that's why I bring it up in the book, and that's why we're discussing it now, because, oh, okay, this might have something to do with how C.V. Wood knew about the telluric current in Anaheim, okay? Because geomorphology, the reading of the terrain, is exactly within SRI's bailiwick, and the various things they do, um, geomorphology would be one of them, you know, because, uh, you know, they get involved with landscape engineering and such, okay? And that's probably how or one of the ways uh, Wood was aware. It's whatever SRI knew about Anaheim and the, and the founders of it and the viticultural uh, culture there. That's really interesting to know. And in that case, is, it is very relevant to what we're talking about tonight. All right, folks, this is the part where we turn on the seatbelt signs on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because here we go. All right, Walter, let's talk about this carousel because we have alluded to it the whole first hour. And this carousel uh, is not just a, a metaphor here, really, to call it the key to what we're discussing tonight because it seems like that was its purpose. Let's get into this. What is the deal with the carousel? Why was it located where it was? Because as we're going to find out here in a minute, it, its location was altered slightly but why did C.V. Woods, was he the one that chose the spot for the carousel? Did this carousel have any other meaning to C.V. Wood? Let's get into that. Ah, okay. We, we've already established that through um, his personal interests and very likely his employment as an engineer of sorts um, at SRI, okay? We've already established that through that, those two things— he would have known about the telluric current in Anaheim. And he very specifically, I argue, would have known about this intersection of three telluric currents, okay, right. in what is now Disneyland. And I argue that that's why he pushed for that site to be the location of Disneyland. Now, yes, as the chief physical engineer of Disneyland, he was indeed the one who laid out physical um, Disneyland in relation to uh, uh, the site. You know, Walt knew he wanted to have Adventureland and Tomorrowland and Fantasyland. He, he knew he wanted to have those things. Now, where they actually broke ground and physically located what Walt wanted, yes, C.V. Wood would have been in charge of that. And then ultimately, once they broke ground and got everything ready to put Disneyland itself, the elements of the park in place, yes, C.V. Wood would have been the one who oversaw, you know, okay, Walt wants the carousel in the middle of Fantasyland. Okay, this is the spot, you know, on our, our plans that the carousel will sit, and here's where the buildings you want are, Walt, and on and on and so forth. So, 
yes, as I argue, C.V. Wood knew what he was doing when he put that carousel in that spot, on that spot. Now, what does it do? Well, this is what I propose, is that C.V. Wood built Disneyland, physical Disneyland, to be a psychotronic device, okay? And that is the way it was built physically would interact with the human subconscious, Okay. And I'm convinced that Wood did this merely, primarily and merely to enhance the experience of being in the park. This was not with some evil intent to control children's minds and do all this ridiculous dark stuff you're going to hear people say after this show, um, (laughs) as they've said (laughs) after others. Um, What it was is this guy really believed in this wild out there stuff, and he wanted to apply it and say, wow, what if we could make it to where they forget the outside world, for example, during the hours that they're in the park? Well, they built physical Disneyland. They dug out a bowl from the earth on the site. Okay, Disneyland sets in a bowl. All right. And the berm around the edge around that bowl is the berm that the Disneyland trains run along. Okay. That circle the park. And where the intersection of the three Tolert currents is located is where, as I said, the carousel was positioned directly over. Now, theoretically, the idea is that the carousel, as it spins, it draws up the energy from this intersection of three ley lines and distributes that energy outward and it spreads throughout the park. That would be, in my opinion, the theory which he was working under. The rotation draws the energy up, you know, and that spinning rotation at the, then also spreads it around. I think that's basically what would was... Uh, hoping that this would do. Now, uh, the park opened in 1955, and in 1982, they redesigned Fantasyland and moved the carousel back a few feet, enough that it no longer, since 1982, has not set directly on top of the intersection of this telluric current. And, as I indicated before, that's really, I personally trace the beginning of the park downsliding to that single move. There are other factors involved. Greed is a main one. But moving the carousel off that, if you accept this speculation, was probably the beginning of the end of that park being, um, for me anyway, a positive experience all the way around. Now, let me ask you something because you said something, uh, sorry to sound redundant, uh, but you just said something that they didn't mean to do anything bad by this, but my research into occult philosophies and knowledge of that nature has taught me that you might not mean to do anything bad, but if you're not prepared for the results, I'll say that the results of what you're doing, it could potentially be a bad experience. Even though the intent wasn't evil or nefarious in any type of way, was there a danger of something bad happening? Or more clearly, did anything bad occur? Because of this, I don't even know if I should call it an experiment, but this uh, device, as you refer to in the book. Yeah, if you know, let, let's say, let's for the sake of the conversation, let's all buy the premise, okay? That I'm right about this. Um, of course, you have to recognize the potential because we're talking about. If you recall in the book, I present four possibilities in relation to my experience. The four possibilities that 
I personally could have experienced because of this device being operational and me experiencing it, okay? And one of those possibilities is, um, you know, you're dealing with interdimensional phenomena. Now, you know, you go, again, you go opening doors, you don't always know what's going to come through. You're right. Now, when I say it wasn't intended, I'm addressing the stories out there that people think that, you know, they paint Walt Disney as some evil wizard in a secret society and he consciously wanted to control children's minds. That's what I'm addressing, okay? Uh, You're right. The unexpected consequences could be something, you know, theoretically dark and negative. Of course. Of course that's possible. But I was addressing, you know, the, the idea that it was some diabolical thing that Disney did on purpose or even Wood did on purpose. No, no, I, I, you get into the details and you study these guys and the situation and that stuff quickly um, proves to be as ridiculous as it often sounds. I just thought it might be interesting for you to relay your um, anecdote about meeting uh, the mysterious man in Disneyland. Yeah, Alfred. Yes, that's how this all started for me. It was in '81, and um, I went to Disneyland with you know a bunch of friends. Again, I'm a native Southern Californian. I was um, still in high school, um, my senior year. And we went to Disneyland, and it was in um, people who study strange phenomena will find, you know, the significance of the fact it was in, you know, the 9 o'clock hour. It was sometime after 9 p.m. A lot of weird things can happen in that hour um, with strange phenomena. And, And it was in that hour, and we rode the carousel. So we're on the carousel. Remember, this is before it was moved. This was before it was According to my speculation and theory and my research, it was still in its original place over the Tulare Current. We're riding the carousel, and as we're going around, I see this old man who I place around probably 80 years old, uh, kind of cropped white hair, snow white, white beard, you know, not too long, um, a black suit and a white shirt, no tie. And he's just standing there. Those of you familiar with California Disneyland, he was standing there in that area between Dumbo and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, which is the walk path that will take you back to the Matterhorn and Small World and, you know, the teacups before that. That's where he was standing. You know, and I went around like two or three times and he was there just watching the carousel spin around. And then the last time I went around, he wasn't there. And then the ride ended and we got off the ride and, you know, we wandered in that direction. We headed in the direction of that path I just described. And we got to the area just past the teacups. I believe there's a bench at the time. There was a bench, um, in the vicinity of where the monorail track is. And this man was sitting there and I, can't explain why. It's just one of those things in life. Um, I felt compelled to go speak to the guy. And I had two friends with me. And um, essentially, what I remember of the conversation, and that's due to time, not substance. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I was a nerd, okay? So I, you know, I didn't drink. I didn't smoke anything. Um, but you know, what I distinctly remember from the conversation was he said it was his first time at Disneyland. He was looking at the place wide-eyed, um, you know, like he'd never seen anything like this before. And um, he was down to, I think, an A ticket. This was in the days of the old ticket books, but also at the same time you could get the passport unlimited use ticket at that time. Now it's all unlimited use. But he was down to just like an A ticket. And we all had unlimited passport tickets. Well, 
the ticket he had, we could he could ride Small World. So we actually took him. I took him over. I led the way. I took him over to Small World, and we rode Small World with him. And he's just, you know, everybody else jokes about Small World, right? They talk about how annoying it is. And uh, but he was just wide eyed. And wow, I never seen anything like this. And we got off Small World, and we're walking back to where we met him at the bench. And I again, I just felt compelled to do this. Maybe I was a nice kid. I don't know. But I thought, you know what? The park's open for still about another hour and a half. Um, this old guy's never been here. He's probably never going to come back. He's got no more tickets. I um, gave him my passport ticket, and I said, hey, with this, you can go ride whatever you want as many times as you want. You still have over an hour. You know, go have fun. And this guy reacted so grateful, like I had given him a pot of gold. I, he was just – and he said his name was Alfred. You know, we introduced ourselves, and he said his name was Alfred. And somebody had a pin. One of the girls hanging out had a pin. So we pinned the passport to his jacket so he wouldn't lose it. And he walked into Fantasyland, and we went our way. That was the last I saw of him for 11 years. And then in 1992... I'm working for the FBI. I'm in Manhattan, and I'm going to my favorite lunchtime spot, the Coliseum Bookstore. Again, I said I'm a nerd. And uh, I like to go to the paranormal book section and stuff. And I'm, I'm looking at this book in 1992 in Manhattan called The Old Straight Track. Ooh, what's this ley line stuff? This is, I've heard about this in the late 80s. Some guys did a study where they were able to show that UFOs and, and, and ghosts and other weird things uh, all had in common these, these ley lines. This is interesting, these energy lines. Well, you know, I heard about this. But here's this book written in 1928 by this guy um, where he discovered, you know, he was discovering interesting mystical things with ley lines. And, you know, oh, you know, an interesting guy from England named uh, Alfred T. Watkins. I'm like, oh, Alfred T. Watkins. Okay. So I open up the book and there's a photograph of Alfred T. Watkins. And as I'm telling you this, um, I'm getting goosebumps because I did then. Goosebumps all over. Because when I looked at that picture of Alfred T. Watkins, it's the classic portrait you've all seen. Um, I was looking at the man I met at Disneyland. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting. I do not recall the man at Disneyland having a British accent. I don't recall his voice. (laughs) I just recall what he looked like, and he was the spitting image right down to the beard and the hair of Alfred T. Watkins. Now, I go into this in the book because the obvious... Crazy implications. Um, Alfred Watkins died, uh, I think, 45 years before that night I was at Disneyland and met his double. Wow. So I really began to wonder, what the hell is this all about? Because you got to remember, by that time, I had experienced years of high strangeness in my life. Okay, this was just another log on that fire and a big one. And that stayed with me and nagged me for years until finally it was in 2006. I've been friends with Greg Bishop for a couple of years. I'm on his show one night and we say, hmm, why was uh, Club 33 called Club 33? And so we're on the air and we pull it up online and, oh, this is interesting. Disneyland is on the 33rd degree of latitude, specifically 33.8118. And those of you who follow numerology will see how interesting that is because 8118 connects to 9, and 9 is a doozy of a number numerologically. Um, And it meant a lot, you know, in my mind. Um, So, as you can see, I had this strange encounter with a doppelganger of Alfred Watkins, the man who 45 
you know, years earlier had died and had written, uh, you know, um, this book uh, about these interesting mystical ley lines and on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I still don't know exactly what to say about that. Let me ask you this. Uh, it's a it's an excellent segue for my next question. Uh, and uh, this has to do, again, with uh, Nikola Tesla, who he himself believed that ley lines carried energy, if you will. And it was this energy that had to do with the spin of the earth and the rotation of the earth. And I mean, and sorry to any flat earthers that may be listening, but this is why he said that the earth was spherical in shape. And this rotation and the energy created by this rotation is one of the things that he was trying to tap into. This seems to be the concept behind the carousel and its location on the intersection of these ley lines. What effect could this have to visitors of the park at the time? Because as I mentioned, and we'll get into this in a minute, the, the carousel was moved. But what effects would this have? Would they have encounters with potentially spirits or beings from another dimension as you potentially had? And if so, what other type of things would have people experience? Absolutely. If I indeed experienced um, an extraordinary phenomenon as a result of this, absolutely anybody who was visiting the park could also have. Now, as you know, I have a whole chapter in the book that talks about the ghosts that have been seen at the park. Um, and there are those reports from both employees and park goers. Um, I think, as I said, um, what C.V. Woods' vision was, um, it was to enhance the experience of the park. Now, what does that mean? Now, earlier I alluded to, um, you know, while you're in the park, not really forgetting that there's an outside world, right? Not not really remembering that you're in Anaheim, California. It's similar, you know, anybody who's been to Vegas or a big casino town like that, when you're in Vegas, particularly when you're inside one of those casinos, you kind of, it's easy to forget. Is it daytime outside? Is it nighttime? What time is it? They don't have clocks anywhere for that right. very purpose. You're just, you're there to get lost in the experience. And that's what Wood was doing with Disneyland, I think, with this esoteric engineering. He wanted to, during the hours you're in the park, uh, adults as well, you know, not just the children, but the adults as well, he wanted to reach into your psyche. He wanted this energy to be flowing where it would, the symbols and the images and the, the attractions and the smells and all the nice little things that Disney wanted in the park would work even stronger on your psyche and your subconscious um, in a positive way to just make you feel like a kid again if you're an adult, to go in there and say, wow. You know, my kid screamed at me to come to this place, and, you know, I'm enjoying it, too. This is just, this is amazing. You know, where getting you to the point where you don't look at your watch, where, you know, you just, you forget your cares. I think that, honestly, was the designed intent of this Disneyland as device, um, if I'm right about this. Um, now, of course, as we said earlier, if you're playing with the psyche, if you're playing literally with portals, you know, uh, if we want to go there. Again, yeah, what, anything could come through, right? right? And depending also on the symbols that you're specifically playing with. Now, that's a whole aspect of the book I go into that we probably don't even have time to go into tonight, and that is um, 
Fantasyland is the really the heart and soul of Disneyland, and that deals with fairy tales. And we all know the fairy tales that were Disneyized or Disneyfied, you know, kind right. of watered down. Um, I go into this in the book. When you go back, and I'm not the only guy that's ever done this before. Um, I think it started with Bruno Bettelheim and, and Carl Jung, even. Um, you know, you dig into the origin of the fairy tales, and they were dark stories, and they were meant to be. They had a purpose. And, you know, just the gnomes, you know, the little guys with the red hats. Right. Uh, you know what I say in the book about those red hats. Right, right. You know, if if people today knew what those how those hats became red in, in one particular tradition about gnomes, they would never put a garden gnome, you know, in their garden, and they wouldn't let their kids play with them. <laughs> uh, it's true. You know. I, I, I read that part and I was like, holy cow, I did not know this tidbit of information, which I'll leave it there for folks to uh, find on their own because, believe me, it'll be a yeah, exactly. great fun. <laughs> oh, and before I forget, I'd like to say that this Disneyland book is, for those who like digital books, it's also on Kindle for just like a buck ninety-nine. I think. Um, it's I put it out there. It's my cheapest book. So if you don't want to get the printed one, it is it is one of my only two books left. Uh, I left Amazon because Amazon is not good to small press publishers. I'm a small press publisher right. as well as an independent author, and Amazon is terrible to the small press publisher. So I left them, um, and I only have you know the presently two titles. Up. Yeah, but they can find Latitude Thirty Three there. Um, are there any ways for them to um, contact you directly and get like signed copies? <laughs> oh, the signed copies. Um, the best way to do that, uh, obviously, is when I'm somewhere, you know, uh, making a presentation because, you yeah. know, I'll always have a stack of the things uh, for sale. Um, if, yeah, if you live in Southern California and, you know, you want to, meet up sometime with me and Greg Bishop in the Grove there on Fairfax. Um, you know, I can do that or, or just, you know, really, if you're near the Inland Empire, you know, I'll meet up with people at Starbucks and they can, you know, bring their copies. When, when it gets into, I don't keep copies on hand. So what it is is I'd have to order the copy. It would come to me and then I'd have to ship it to you. And then that makes the book more expensive than it needs to be. Right. Um, so if you can get to me, you know, with a copy you already have, that's really the the best the best way to do it. Or wait till I'm, um, or at your local conference uh, event that happens, request that I speak there too. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we definitely. definitely will. No, uh, that's great to know, Walter. We're we're running out of time, but I'm pushing the envelope here with two more questions, and mm -hmm. I believe Genevieve has one more. So, Genevieve, you know, we were talking about um, various, I guess types and forms of energy that you can find around you. And recently someone did make me aware or at least told me that California is one of the um, strongest sites of organite energy. Do you know anything about this? Are you interested in organite energy, Tesla coils, that sort of thing? And do you think um, that plays into it in any way? Well, I don't know much about it. I, I'm definitely open to learning more about it. I would uh, specifically would like to learn how it, um, you know, has any connection to this telluric thing. And I think it probably does, you know, uh, especially when you're talking about, you know, the Tesla technology application, because Tesla knew about this, as we said, the world grid, and he knew about this telluric current. So I'm definitely interested, and I would love to learn more about that. Walter, obviously, we're not going to get into this now, but can you whet our appetite a little bit? You just mentioned it a few minutes ago. 
And uh, in your book, you call it transcendental alchemy. And like I said, just by that name alone, I think people will get that this is going to be a huge part of the book here. But I just want you to just give us a little bit about this because you mentioned how there are symbols around the carousel having to do with, uh, I think it's, it's the sword and the stone and, and some of the other ornaments around the, the carousel that may be alchemical symbols of some sort. Can you just briefly tell us the deal with that? There are key symbols. There's a crown symbol that we get into the uh, four treasures of the Tuatha Dé Nan, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that according to whatever someone's preference on pronunciation is. And, and the Tuatha, uh, that's something I'm deeply interested in, and they turn up in all my my research, and I didn't realize that at first. Um, but uh, what it does is that that's part of how what we're talking about works on your psyche and your subconscious. Through these symbols, your psyche, your subconscious is recognizing in an unconscious way what these symbols are. And when you, you connect that to an, uh, an operative device that's drawing this energy, this triple energy, because it's an intersection of three to alert currents, um, it's really flipping switches in your mind that, um, uh, you know, Carl Jung would have loved to have taken a spin on that carousel <laughs> at Disneyland when it was in place. <laughs> and to finish up here, talk about when it was in place. In 1984, it was kind of like the changing of the guard, I want to say. And Disney was under uh, the new leadership of Michael Eisner. How did this event change Disneyland? Well, how it changed Disneyland materially was Walt Disney, when he envisioned the park and he, and he put the park together, um, those of us who remember the park as it was, um, not every attraction had something to do with one of his movies or TV shows, okay? There were several attractions that were just there because it was interesting, like, you know, the, the submarine voyage. He did not do a submarine voyage movie. He had done 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but the submarine voyage right at Disneyland, these were modern submarines. It had nothing to do with any product of his. And there were several attractions that had, you know, Autopia had nothing to do with a product. Uh, at the time, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Jungle Cruise, nothing to do with a product. Now, in the new generation, you know, uh, particularly once, you know, Eisner got in control, increasingly the park became about products. And, you know, they, they changed the submarine voyage. Instead of making what it was better, it has to be Finding Nemo. It has to tie in with a product. And they started doing this increasingly throughout the park. It's, it's tied in with a product, tied in with a product, money, money, money. And now, of course, the park is so ridiculously expensive to go to for what it is that uh, I'm a lifelong lover of that place, and I, I've been disgusted with it for over a decade. Um, wow. I, I, honestly, I'm a poor writer. I can't afford to go, and I think even if I could, I'm not sure I would because it, I just don't like what it's become. When For years after Walt built it, you never saw dirty handrails or worn paint on anything. They would steam clean the streets and pathways of that place every night. They would touch up the paint. You never saw the place looking shabby. And I have seen that place looking shabby over the course of the last 15, 20 years. And Walt Disney never would have tolerated that. But during the Eisner era, and then after he left even, they've become an even bigger eat-it-all-up monster, in my opinion. Um, and what yeah. else can we say about that? <laughs> <laughs> and as we mentioned throughout the show, the carousel was moved a few feet 
And in your book, you call this all the deactivating the device or disengaging the device. I imagine you have been to the park after this move. Can you tell a difference in the environment of the park? Is that bit of magic gone in a way? Yes. It's just exactly what I was describing to you because the last time I went to the park was 2009. 2008 or not, I went there with Sesherie and, um, you know, the gentleman that had helped me with the background stuff and the Telerik current stuff on the book. And we thought it'd be interesting to go together. And, and, um, I believe it was 2009 or 10 was the last time I went, but yeah, absolutely. What I'm talking about is, um, since they redesigned fantasy land, um, that really, you can trace the, the, the really downgrading of the experience of that park, um, beginning in, you know, the eighties after they, after they did that. Now, if I'm crazy, and this thing is not a device, and I'm absolutely nuts, and I'm wrong. Um, it's still, you know, um, a fact that the place has just gone in that direction. I don't think I'm crazy. I don't think I'm wrong. Knowing what I found out about C.V. Wood, um, whether it worked or not, um, and I think it did, uh, I think he did do this. And to some degree, it does work, even if just for the presence of those symbols that your eye catches and your psyche picks up. If if it's just on that basic level, something in there, you know, is trying to work on that level. And whether it can get through the noise of the greed and the crowd now um, is a different question. Right. Uh, And last, this is, I promise, is the last question. I can't let you go without asking this question because I know we might get comments if we don't ask this. And Genevieve kind of pointed that attention to this. Lastly, talk about myth and legend surrounding Disney, Walt Disney, Disneyland, and Disney movies in general. A lot has been said about mind control programming and things of that nature and very sexual undertones in a lot of their artwork and movies. And even some uh, occult things like uh, the show Gravity Falls, it has like an all C&I character and things like that. So I know Genevieve wants to ask something along those lines. Um, You've already laid the foundation and you've explained that you don't believe, you know, uh, Walt Disney himself had much to do with this. But what it has metamorphed into is something very different nowadays. And I think most people will agree. If it wasn't that before, it is something very different now. Would you agree that there are very, or at least some, nefarious motivations behind a lot of Disney projects? Uh, I think what's going on is um, an equivalent of um, psychological hooliganism. (laughs) Um, When you really look at it, okay, the dividing line is the stuff that was produced while Walt was alive and then stuff that was produced after Walt died, more specifically beginning with the Eisner era. Now, the the worst offenders, the worst offensive material that you can point to, the sexual stuff, that, if you will notice, that is all in the Eisner era Disney animated stuff, the thing with the penises in Little Mermaid and, and, you know, all the other, the the sex written in the sky and the Lion King. That's clearly, you know, a a few decades after Walt Disney died, okay? And it's during, you know, the Eisner era. Now, the things you could point to in the films when Disney was alive, there's nothing that nefarious 
in those films. Um, the things you can point out are of an esoteric or, or symbolic nature, that relates to the, the source material of the fairy tales, okay? So it's not, it might be tinged with potential darkness from a philosophical point of view, but it's all mythological, okay, in its content. It's not, you know, it doesn't feel dirty or sleazy like the stuff that clearly showed up you know, in the overtly starting in the nineties. Um, so, you know, yeah, you did have an animator put apparently, you know, a, a picture of a naked lady in a window in the, um, Oh, what's that Disney rescuers? Film? I believe it was rescuers. Yeah. That was after Walt died. I mean, like oh. over a decade after he died. And that's what I mean by, you know, guys goofing around in hooliganism, but the, right. the worst stuff really didn't show up until the Eisner era. Gotcha. Wow, Walter, what can I say? These two hours just flew by and... And I thought we just built it up for another <laughs> interview. <laughs> well, I think we built it up for people to check out this book. And honestly, that's what I really want to encourage folks to do. So, Walter, why don't you tell people where they can find it? You mentioned it's on Amazon for a great prize. But if they want to support and buy the physical copy and get some of your other books, where can people go? Those are at lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U.com. I have what's called a storefront. Uh, I think you can put in the name of my company, Lost Continent Library or Walter Bosley. And, uh, you know, you find one of my books and it'll take you to my storefront if you tap my name, the author name. And um, those are printed books. They're print on demand. They're, they're pretty quick. It only takes them between the time you order it and the time you receive it. I think it takes them, you know, 10 days to two weeks. And they're very quality printed books. Um, uh, my editing's not always perfect. Okay, I'll concede that because I know somebody out there is going to complain. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but physically, um, you know, they're they're greatly uh, produced books, and I think at a pretty affordable price. I try to keep them that way. I think that the uh, research within those pages is definitely worth the money, and I encourage people to check it out because um, it will open your mind to this other world of possibilities that you had not considered, and your insight and your background gives us this look that we otherwise wouldn't get. So I want to thank you for all your work, and I hope we can have you back again on the show. Definitely, and can I just add that you always hear Walter's voice in in the book you have the narrator's voice and that i love that, that. is true i love that aspect <laughs> thank you i you know i'll just say that i speculate i admit that i'm speculating i don't ask people to just accept what i say blindly i just ask the reader to consider the possibilities and the context and the research mm -hmm. i've done to propose why i'm presenting these speculations but thank you guys for having me on i i love talking with you every time and i do look forward to the next time Awesome. Thank you so much, Walter, and uh, we wish you a great rest of your night. Thank, Thank you. you. You too. And that was Walter Bosley. We talked about his book, Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. Walter Holy cow. Boss. <laughs> oh, is, that, is that what we're going to call him? <laughs> Walt the, the Boss. boss. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what they call Walt Disney, right? Or something. I don't know. We interviewed Bob <laughs> Gurr, who was one of the original Imagineers, and he has some great tales to tell yeah. about Oh working with the man himself. Yeah, oh no, yeah, yeah. definitely. So like, check that out. It's on our website. with him. <laughs> and our YouTube channel, if you Google it there, Bob Gurr interview with West of the Rockies, uh, it'll pop up. But I want to thank Walter for uh, being on the show tonight. It was definitely a, a very fascinating interview. And if you've been to the park, you could probably relate to a lot of the places and things that we were referenced to. And if you haven't been to the park, maybe, I mean, it's an expensive ticket nowadays, but it might be worth a visit just to kind of see 
the location yourself and just get a vibe for the rich. place. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> it's like that's what it's coming to. I haven't been to Disneyland in like forever. I got to get the homie hookup ticket, if you know what I mean. I was, yeah. it's, like, it, it's like, how how well can I climb this fence? I know, right? <laughs> so uh, big shout out to Walter. Check out his books at lulu.com. That's L-U-L-U dot com. And this particular book, Latitude 33, as he mentioned, it's on Amazon. So if you want to get your feet wet, it's, I think, yeah, it's like two, three bucks. And uh, yeah, it's and an excellent read. Please, please do go support them. The reason a lot of his books aren't available as ebooks anymore are because a lot of people were basically pirating them. Yeah. And for a small publisher, it's not cool. For anybody, really. For anyone, it's not cool. <laughs> but for a small publisher, it's even less cool. That's right. And uh, that being said, as always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio. It's like West of the Rockies, all the initials, WOTR Radio. And uh, the website is the same, WTRRadio.com. Don't forget to click subscribe on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash WTR Radio. You see the pattern emerging, I'm sure. Click subscribe. Uh, What's up, and- Facebook? <laughs> well, that's a different one. That's I know, West of right? the Rockies, right? I, I totally wasn't thinking when I grabbed that. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Genevieve. Uh, you can catch here every Thursday night, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific, hosting her very own show, No Added Flavors, Music, Fun Facts, Jokes, and a whole lot more. Boy, great show tonight. I want to thank everybody that tuned in through uh, the TuneIn app, Ustream, LiveMe. If you're listening to the podcasted version of this show, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your thank continued you support. to you in the future. Thank you to you in the future. <laughs> that being said, take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. And we're going to go out with a song. I actually wanted to go out on break with this song, but I felt like it was a little long. It, 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 it's like nine minutes, but it's a song by Buckethead. But it's honestly one of my all-time favorite Buckethead tunes. Uh, we just saw Buckethead in December, and if he comes to your town, definitely check it out. Uh, if you're into sci-fi, horror movies, and uh, comic books and music, that'll be your cup <laughs> of tea. He's an amazing, amazing, amazing guitar if player. If you're so, into anything, go right? check him out. <laughs> So this song is called Suitsayer from his album Crime Slunk Scene. This was Buckethead. Enjoy this one, guys. We'll see you next week. Till then, be safe. Bye-bye. Good night. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.